Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On a spring day in April 1991, a group of artists gathered in the sparse surroundings of a former classroom in New York's East Village to discuss a new project. The photographers, painters, filmmakers, and costume designers were part of a nonprofit arts organization called Visual AIDS, which was formed to raise awareness about HIV-AIDS. During the previous decade, New York's downtown arts community had become an unimaginable scene of devastation. A multitude of talented people had died, and many more were sick or were caring for sick and dying friends. The entire community was touched in one way or another by HIV. The group of artists wanted to create a visual expression to show people living with AIDS that they were supported and understood. What they came up with would become an internationally recognized symbol of HIV awareness, and it helped launch an era of AIDS activism. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at the people and events that helped shape the fight to remove the stigma and shame that surrounded HIV. This is the story of AIDS advocacy in the 1990s. On the last episode of History of the 90s, we introduced you to Ryan White, a teenage boy from Indiana who contracted HIV-AIDS from a tainted blood transfusion in the mid-80s. During his fight to attend school with his peers, Ryan became a spokesperson to end the stigmatization associated with HIV. Before he died in 1990, he taught the world to fear the virus, not the people who have it. But even after everything Ryan accomplished, in the 1990s, there was still so much stigma attached to HIV-AIDS that people were often dying without even telling their closest friends or family that they were sick. They died alone because of the shame they felt about having contracted the disease. John Maxwell from the AIDS Committee of Toronto, or ACT, says you can't talk about HIV-AIDS without talking about homophobia. The appearance of HIV in gay communities, largely in North America and in Western Europe, meant that from the very early days, there was this association between HIV, AIDS and gay men. In fact, before this was named AIDS, it was actually called GRID, Gay-Related Immunofficiency Syndrome. So so when you think about that, the the fact that it was named after a particular community played into the, 
the homophobia that was already existing in society, the ways in which, and then that spilled out into the community at, at large. Maxwell says as a result, some of those battling the illness still found themselves alone after telling their family members about their diagnosis. Many families were, were having to reconcile that their, you know, their sons were gay and now they had this disease and they were embarrassed and ashamed. Uh, many of them completely abandoned uh, their, uh, their, their, their children. Um, and they, that's why they really had to rely on the community and community organizations like ACT to actually advocate for you know people's rights, their human rights, their dignity, their access to appropriate medical care. In New York, the group of 12 artists from Visual Aids who met in the East Village classroom to work on a special project wanted to advocate for people with AIDS by developing a visual symbol of compassion, something that would let the thousands of people impacted by the virus know they weren't alone. Within an hour or so of brainstorming, the group settled on a simple red ribbon. They took their inspiration from the yellow ribbons that were tied to trees all around the U.S. as support for the military fighting in the first Gulf War. But the AIDS ribbon would be red, and it was smaller, so it could be worn on a shirt or a jacket. Making the ribbon was simple. Six inches of satin material twisted in a loop and then attached to clothing with a safety pin. And that was the point. The group members wanted it to be easy enough to replicate in mass numbers. Within a couple of months of that first meeting, the group kicked off the Red Ribbon Project and went to work making the ribbons with the help of friends and volunteers. They handed them out at theaters and other places around the New York art scene. In a genius move, Visual Aids sent a box of 3,000 red ribbons to the Minskoff Theater on Broadway just before the 45th annual Tony Awards were set to take place. A few days later, as members of the group watched the ceremony on TV, they were shocked and thrilled to see that one of the first presenters who came on stage, actor Jeremy Irons, was wearing a red ribbon on his lapel. People watching at home didn't really know what the ribbon stood for, but that would soon change. It was the beginning of a movement that would sweep North America, from Hollywood to the suburbs. At first, groups of volunteers would get together in what were called ribbon bees, like a quilting bee, to cut, fold, and pin thousands of ribbons. Eventually, though, as the popularity of the ribbons grew, the job of making them was outsourced to an organization that paid homeless women to make them. Over the next several months, the red ribbon was seen at the Emmys, the Golden Globes, the People's Choice Awards, and the Grammys. And stars weren't just wearing the red ribbon. People like Jamie Lee Curtis and Whoopi Goldberg were also openly discussing what they stood for and why AIDS awareness was so important. Musicians, athletes, artists, and politicians were also seen wearing red ribbons on talk shows, at sporting events, and political conventions. And the ribbon proliferated mainstream life as well. Schools and churches contacted visual aids for advice on how to educate kids and parishioners about HIV-AIDS, and they wanted to know how they could host their own ribbon-making events. There was no escaping this powerful symbol of compassion. By the 64th Academy Awards in April 1992, the red ribbon had become ubiquitous. 10,000 ribbons were sent to the ceremony, 
and they could be seen pinned on host Billy Crystal, as well as Bette Midler, Sharon Stone, and Richard Gere, who presented the award for cinematography. Yeah, hi there. I just wanted to remind you again what this meant here, this, this red ribbon is in sympathy of AIDS victims all over the world. And since this is going to countries all over the world, I think an appropriate thing to think about is what can you do about it, which is uh, in these day and age when, when defense budgets are shrinking, we could take some of that defense money and put it into AIDS research. I think we do it in our own country. Gear encouraged viewers to write or call their congressman or senator to demand that more money be spent on AIDS research. And that was the point of the Red Ribbon campaign. It wasn't a fashion statement, although it became a bit of one, with stars like Elizabeth Taylor sporting jewel-encrusted red ribbons. It was actually a desperate attempt to educate with a goal of saving lives. Roger McFarlane, who was the executive director of a theater-based AIDS group called Broadway Cares, said it best in 1992. A movie star wearing a red ribbon doesn't feed anybody or protect them from discrimination. But it does raise the issue that invisibility and silence can kill people. Not long after that pivotal Oscar ceremony, the little red ribbon made its way across the Atlantic Ocean to a massive concert at Wembley Stadium. On April 20th, 1992, 75,000 people wearing red ribbons attended a tribute for legendary Queen singer Freddie Mercury. He died the year before on November 24th, 1991 from AIDS-related pneumonia. George Michael, Liza Minnelli, David Bowie, Annie Lennox, Axl Rose, and countless other famous people turned up to pay their respects to Mercury. The concert also raised vital funds for HIV research, and it helped educate people about the illness. For many outside the LGBTQ community, the AIDS epidemic was something you just heard about on the news. Mercury's death was the moment when HIV AIDS became real to them. 24 hours before his death, the singer, who had privately been battling the illness for two years, finally confirmed that he had AIDS. In a statement, he said, I felt it correct to keep this information private in order to protect the privacy of those around me. However, the time has now come for my friends and fans around the world to know the truth. Deborah Gold, the head of the National AIDS Trust, has said that Freddie Mercury's choice to go public with his HIV diagnosis was a cultural touchstone moment for the AIDS movement. It helped to raise awareness and remind people that they need to protect themselves from the virus. Another cultural touchstone occurred the same year Freddie Mercury died when one of the greatest basketball players of all time made a stunning announcement at a hastily called news conference in Los Angeles. Because of the the HIV virus that I have attained, uh, I will have to retire from the Lakers uh, today. Irvin Magic Johnson had just found out the day before that he was HIV positive while completing some preseason medical tests. When the Los Angeles Lakers point guard made the shocking announcement on November 7th, 1991, no one of his stature had publicly revealed an HIV diagnosis. 
part of the reason the news was so shocking to many was because in 1991, HIV-AIDS was still largely seen as a disease that affected gay white men and drug users. A black married heterosexual athlete just didn't sync up with what people thought about the disease. The other reason it was shocking was because at the time, HIV was still considered a death sentence. The life-saving drug therapies we have today had not yet been discovered. So people wondered if it meant Magic Johnson was going to die. But the 32-year-old NBA star told the room full of stunned reporters that he was fine. He had the virus, but no AIDS symptoms. And the man known as Mr. Showtime planned to stick around. I would now become a, a spokesman for the HIV virus because I want people and young people to realize that they can uh, practice safe sex. And, uh, you know, sometimes you're a little naive about it and you think it could never happen to you. Uh, and you only thought it could happen to, you know, other people and so on and on. And uh, it has happened, but I'm going to deal with it and my life will go on. When Johnson went public, 25% of those diagnosed with HIV in the United States were black, despite only making up 12% of the country's population. And half of all women diagnosed with the illness were also black. Public health officials trying to raise awareness were struggling to gain ground in the black community. So Johnson's public acknowledgement of his diagnosis was huge. The tangible effect was seen immediately. The next day, calls to AIDS hotlines and testing centers more than doubled in most places. For example, the CDC received 50,000 calls in the first seven hours after Magic's news conference. Normally, they got about 5,000 calls a day. The number of people being tested for HIV also increased sharply throughout the nation in the month after Magic's announcement. In New York City, the number jumped by almost 60%. Many of those seeking tests were heterosexual men and women who had engaged in risky sexual behavior in the past, something that Magic admitted he did in an autobiography released the next year in 1992. In it, he revealed that he got HIV after sleeping with dozens, if not hundreds, of women while on the road with the Lakers in the 1980s. But Magic Johnson's life and career were far from over. Although he was retired, fans voted for him to play in the 1992 NBA All-Star Game, and that led to a historic spot on the U.S. Olympic Dream Team that won gold in Barcelona. He coached the Lakers for one season in 93-94, and then made a short-lived comeback as a Lakers player in the 95-96 season. And today, Magic is healthy. The Hall of Famer is a successful businessman and a prominent spokesman for AIDS awareness. But not everyone with HIV-AIDS was that lucky. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1992, HIV-AIDS hit a grim milestone in the U.S. 
it became the number one cause of death among men aged 25 to 44. Over 21,000 men in that age group succumbed to AIDS-related illnesses that year. The numbers were staggering. By 1993, 92 Americans a day were dying from the virus. The CDC estimated that up to 1.5 million people in the U.S. had been infected with HIV since it was first recognized in 1981, and 205,000 had died. And over 10 years into the crisis, there was no talk of a vaccine, and not really even any successful treatments. Only three antiviral drugs, AZT, DDL, and DDC, had received approval from the FDA. They weren't a cure, but a treatment that was supposed to extend a patient's life. But HIV is a tricky virus. It has a biochemical knack for adapting to treatments that appear to be effective at first. So new viral strains soon appeared that were resistant to AZT and the other antivirals. In an effort to speed up the discovery of drugs that could stop the epidemic, in the fall of 1993, President Bill Clinton established the National Task Force on AIDS Drug Development. The 15-member panel included people from AIDS-impacted communities as well as AIDS researchers. But the vocal AIDS activist group ACT UP called the task force Smoke and Mirrors and criticized President Clinton for not living up to promises he made during the election campaign. The group ACT UP, which stands for the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, was formed in 1987 at New York's Lesbian and Gay Community Services Center by a small, hardcore group of activists who were fed up with the Reagan government that was largely indifferent to the epidemic, which was claiming the lives of tens of thousands of people, most of whom were gay men. In response to Clinton's announcement, ACT UP held loud demonstrations in cities across the country, demanding more money be spent on AIDS research, treatment, and education. Their plan of attack was pretty simple. Take action that was dramatic enough to capture public attention. And as the group grew to include thousands of activists around the country, their actions couldn't be ignored. They wrapped the home of then-North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms in a giant yellow condom. They invaded St. Patrick's Cathedral during Mass, laid siege to the Food and Drug Administration, dumped the ashes of comrades who had died of AIDS on the White House lawn, and they blocked Manhattan traffic by sitting down in the road. They have been ignoring us all these years, and the only way you get attention from them is to hit them where it hurts. And in New York City, of course, traffic hurts. It was hand-to-hand combat in the war against AIDS, with a motto, silence equals death. Nothing was off limits. Members of ACT UP stormed people's offices and covered computers with fake blood, and they locked themselves to politicians' desks. One of their main arguments was that people facing almost certain death from AIDS should have access to experimental drugs that had been shown to be reasonably safe. By 1990, the FDA listened to them and adopted an approach known as the parallel track, which made selected experimental drugs available to HIV-positive patients. It was a massive accomplishment. The slogan, Drugs into Bodies, had moved from placards to policy, ACT UP forced a fundamental change in the way clinical trials are conducted in the United States. And not just for AIDS-related drugs, but for treatments of all diseases. Their success laid the groundwork for a bigger role for patient advocacy. 
John Maxwell from the AIDS Committee of Toronto says the model of organizing within the HIV community as a whole is something that's replicated by other groups today who are advocating for health issues. This notion that, you know, we need to be actively involved in our health care, um, that, you know, people shouldn't be making decisions without us being a part of that decision making process. And I think that's one of the one of the happy things that sort of came out of HIV and AIDS was that notion that community needs to be engaged in their own health and their own health care. People suffering from everything from cancer to diabetes now have a voice in how their disease is researched and treated. And that's thanks to the work done by groups like ACT and ACT UP. AIDS advocacy and activism took many shapes in the 90s. While some chose to protest in the streets, others expressed their feelings about the crisis through art. Among them was playwright Tony Kushner, whose two-part, seven-hour play, Angels in America, changed the national conversation about HIV-AIDS. You may know Kushner from his collaborations with Steven Spielberg. He's written screenplays for Munich, Lincoln, and the recent remake of West Side Story. But back in 1987, he received a grant from the National Endowment Fund to write a play which he pitched as a story about five gay male characters starring Washington lawyer Ray Cohn, Mormons, and AIDS. Kushner called it a gay fantasia on national themes. And it lived up to that designation with wild visions, dream sequences, and an angel that crashes through the ceiling. The first part, called Millennium Approaches, was released in Los Angeles in November 92. Part two, called Perestroika, was released the next year. And eventually, both parts opened on Broadway, where it won the Tony Award for the Best Play in 93 and 94. Kushner also received the Pulitzer Prize for drama. It's been said that Angels in America introduced the AIDS crisis to people who weren't paying attention to the virus. And even for those paying attention, it put things into a whole new context. And it offered hope in the face of darkness. The HIV-AIDS crisis was depicted in other Broadway productions, including the 1996 rock musical Rent by Jonathan Larson. And there was also the HBO movie The Band Played On in 1997, based on the nonfiction book by the same name. But Hollywood stayed away from the topic, reluctant to make a movie that tackled the AIDS crisis head-on, and especially not one that focused on the gay community. That is until the 1993 movie Philadelphia, starring Tom Hanks as a gay lawyer who sues his employer after being fired because he has AIDS. Excuse me, Charles, with all due respect, this this is preposterous. It, it, It doesn't make any sense. Director Jonathan Demme was inspired to make a film about the AIDS crisis when he lost a close friend to the illness. And because he had just won an Oscar for the hugely successful movie Silence of the Lambs, he had some clout in the industry to do what he wanted. Working with his producing partner Ed Saxon, who had also recently lost a friend to AIDS, as well as screenwriter Ron Nicewaner, Demme's project soon attracted the attention of many stars in Hollywood. In fact, actor Tom Hanks reportedly wanted the role at all costs, and he insisted that his agent cold-call Demi and convince him he was the one for the job. 37-year-old Hanks, who had made a name for himself in comedies and rom-coms like Turner and Hooch and Sleepless in Seattle, was desperate to become a serious actor. 
And a movie about a gay lawyer dying of AIDS was exactly the role that could do that. Demi wanted Andrew Beckett, the movie's lawyer character, to be a non-threatening, personable guy who just happened to have AIDS. So that people outside of the LGBTQ community, who may never have met a gay person before, could relate to him and be sympathetic. And Tom Hanks turned out to be the all-American guy next door he was looking for. During filming, Hanks lost 40 pounds to correspond with his character's failing health. And to accurately capture the changes to the actor's body, the movie was filmed in chronological order, which is almost never done in Hollywood. Hanks' character struggles to find a lawyer who will represent him in a wrongful dismissal lawsuit after being let go from his job. And he ends up with Joe Miller, a shifty ambulance chaser who wrestles with his own homophobia before becoming an ally. Demi felt the character would serve as a stand-in for the audience who might find themselves on a similar journey. The original plan was to cast a white comedic actor, someone like Robin Williams or Bill Murray. By chance, producer Ed Saxon ended up on a plane sitting next to Denzel Washington. Saxon was reading the script for the movie, and after Washington found out what it was about, he too wanted to get involved and convinced Demi he was right for the role. The director considered a few other names for the movie, including At Risk, People Like Us, and Probable Cause before settling on Philadelphia. He also considered another musician for the movie's moving theme song. Demi initially commissioned Neil Young to take a stab at the theme music, but Demi felt the song he came up with, called Philadelphia, was too haunting to open the movie. Sometimes I think that I know what love's all about and when I see the light. So instead, Young's song was used over closing footage of lawyer Andrew Beckett as a child and Bruce Springsteen was tapped for the opening song. Springsteen's song Streets of Philadelphia, which was only slightly less haunting than Neil Young's, ended up winning an Oscar at the 1994 Academy Awards. Tom Hanks also grabbed the Oscar for Best Actor. I know that my work in this case is magnified by the fact that the streets of heaven are too crowded with angels. We know their names. They number a thousand for each one of the red ribbons that we wear here tonight. In his speech, Hanks thanked a high school drama teacher, calling him a fine gay American. There's an urban legend that Hanks unexpectedly outed his former teacher on national television that night. But in fact, he asked and received permission from the teacher to make the comment. The movie, which earned over $200 million on a $26 million budget, helped foster AIDS awareness and compassion for people living and dying from the virus. But it was not universally loved in the gay community. Some argued that the Hanks character was desexualized and two-dimensional. Renowned AIDS activist Larry Kramer called it legally, medically, and politically inaccurate. He said he didn't believe for one second that Hanks' character was gay. At the time, Hanks defended his performance by saying in order to reach a mainstream audience, they really had to take care how Andrew Beckett was presented. 
More recently, though, Hanks has admitted that a movie like Philadelphia could and should not be made with a straight man in the lead role. He said, we are way beyond that today. And while he may be right that progress has been made with regards to LGBTQ representation in movies and on TV, there certainly are many examples still of straight actors being cast in gay roles, including Bradley Cooper, who is currently shooting a biopic of Leonard Bernstein, and Ewan McGregor, who recently won an Emmy for playing Halston. As I mentioned earlier, the arts and acting scenes in New York and Hollywood were both hit extremely hard by the AIDS crisis. So too were the fashion and makeup artist communities. And in response, a makeup company with roots in Canada launched one of the most profound social campaigns in the history of the beauty industry. As the MAC Cosmetics brand was growing in popularity in the 90s, founders Frank Angelo and Frank Toskin, who were partners in business and life, wanted to give something back. So in 1994, they launched the Viva Glam Lipstick Campaign, which raises awareness and funds for HIV-AIDS through the sale of special edition lipsticks and glosses. Not a lot of businesses wanted to talk about HIV-AIDS at the time, so it was considered a pretty big risk. But that didn't stop the two Franks. In fact, they doubled down and picked RuPaul to be the face of the first Viva Glam campaign. RuPaul had shot to fame the year before with the hit song, Supermodel of the World. But this was way before RuPaul's Drag Race. Drag was not considered mainstream at all. So Mac was truly a disruptor by choosing the ultimate drag queen to front their campaign. In the 28 years since then, through the yearly Viva Glam campaign, Mac has raised more than half a billion dollars to support people living with HIV AIDS around the world. Despite the awareness that was brought to HIV AIDS through campaigns like Viva Glam and movies like Philadelphia, the virus was still out of control in the U.S. In 1994, it hit another grim milestone. AIDS became the number one cause of death for all Americans between the ages of 25 and 44. More young men and women were dying from the virus than from car crashes or from any other kind of accident or illness. Over 41,000 people in total died from AIDS-related illnesses that year in the U.S., up 9% from the year before. More than a decade after the virus was identified, it was still wreaking havoc. It seemed like nothing could stop it. But quietly behind the scenes, a researcher was making progress. And in 1996, his work had come so far that Time magazine named Dr. David Ho Man of the Year. As scientific director of the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center in New York, Dr. Ho had fundamentally changed the approach to combating the AIDS virus. The strategy was known as hit early, hit hard. Dr. Ho advocated that patients should be treated with a cocktail of aggressive antiviral drugs in the very early stages of infection, instead of waiting until they got sicker, or in some cases, until they had full-blown AIDS. Using this strategy, Dr. Ho had managed to lower the virus count so low in some patients that it was possible that AIDS no longer meant a death sentence. 
By the following year, 1997, the hit-early-hit-hard strategy became the norm in treating HIV-AIDS. And amazingly, the number of AIDS deaths in the U.S. finally began to drop, down 47% from the year before. For the first time since the crisis began, there was hope. Dr. Ho's development brought into use what's known as highly active antiretroviral therapy, or HART, turning HIV-AIDS from a fatal diagnosis to a controllable condition. Today, HIV-AIDS treatment has advanced so much that in many cases, patients are only required to take one pill a day to remain healthy. Now, somebody diagnosed with AIDS who has the right kind of support can live just as long as someone without AIDS. In fact, their viral load can drop so low that it becomes undetectable. And John Maxwell from ACT says that means they can no longer transmit the virus to another person. That's a real game changer. And uh, there was a, a, a slogan created a number of years ago called U equals U, which means undetectable equals untransmittable. That is something that we need to be telling everyone. Uh, it is not a death sentence. You can live a long, healthy life. But many vulnerable populations in Canada, the United States, and other parts of the world, like Africa and Latin America, still don't have equal access to treatment. Indigenous people, gay bisexual men, Black people, and injection drug users are disproportionately affected by HIV. And they also still face stigmatization. I like to draw the parallels between sort of COVID-19 and it first being referred to as the Wuhan virus, or as Trump liked to call it, the China virus. And then you saw the anti-Asian hate, you know, the stigmatization. Well, that very much happened with HIV in a North American context because it was so much associated with gay men. And we know it wasn't just gay men. There were drug users. Others were getting, were getting HIV and AIDS. They just ne didn't necessarily have the access to testing uh, until later to be able to find out. And so... To this day, you still have this perception that gay, you know, gay men equals AIDS. Globally, in 2020, there were over 38 million people living with HIV, with over one and a half million new infections reported that year. What's still needed is a vaccine to stop infections in the first place. Something that many, including John Maxwell, believes could have been developed a long time ago, if the will existed. You know, and I honestly believe when we look at the response to coronavirus and, and yes, mRNA, mRNA vaccines have been, you know, developments in SARS, but we see how within a year we had a vaccine for this. Here we are 40 plus years. We're nowhere near a vaccine for HIV. Um, sure, we've had tremendous developments in uh, treatment for people living with HIV, but I wonder if in a North American context, had HIV first emerged amongst heterosexual communities, we would likely be much further ahead than where we are even today. But the good news is the science behind the coronavirus vaccines may help end the four-decade fight against HIV-AIDS. The new mRNA technology, which was used to develop COVID vaccines, means vaccines can be created and tested in months, not years like traditional technologies. And that's a much-needed boost for scientists working on an HIV vaccine. They can make and test vaccines quickly and tweak or tinker with them as needed to deal with variants in real time. For the first time in 40 years, researchers are optimistic that a vaccine will be approved sometime in the near future. 
Thanks for joining me for this look back at the journey AIDS advocacy took through the 1990s. And thanks to John Maxwell, the executive director of the AIDS Committee of Toronto, for sharing his memories of that era. John's entire interview is available to Patreon subscribers. Check it out at www.patreon.com slash history of the 90s. It's not expensive, and it gives you access to more history of the 90s. Thanks to a couple of new members, Lana and Holly. Your support is greatly appreciated. History of the 90s is on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.